0: This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 80. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's topic, depositions to perpetuate testimony. Hey, everybody, I hope you're having a great week and that your year is off to a fast and great start. Did you know that you can take depositions before a lawsuit is filed, whether you represent the plaintiff or represent a defendant that you know is likely to be sued? Did you also know that you can take depositions after judgment has been rendered in a case and while it is pending appeal? This is all courtesy of Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 27 and its state equivalents. In federal court, the rule is called Depositions to Perpetuate Testimony. But what you'll learn in this episode is that Rule 27 isn't limited to just depositions. You can conduct Other forms of discovery before a lawsuit is filed as well, assuming you can satisfy the rule's requirements. For example, before a lawsuit is filed under Rule 27, you can serve document requests, arrange for physical or mental exams, or conduct scientific tests on evidence that is likely to be spoiled or destroyed. So the rule is actually much broader than its title, which suggests it's just about perpetuating testimony. In fact, I think the title of the rule ought to be changed from depositions to perpetuate testimony to discovery to perpetuate evidence. Now, there's a very old nursery rhyme that begins with something like, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I guess I'll go eat worms. I suspect that if Rule 27 could talk, that's probably what it would say. Same thing with Federal Rule of Civil Procedure, 31, the rule on depositions by written questions. These are the two rules that the overwhelming majority of litigators have never used. Almost nobody does depositions by written questions and almost no one takes or even thinks to take depositions or preserve other types of evidence before a lawsuit is filed or after judgment and once an appeal is filed. I think part of that is due to the fact that the rule is somewhat misnamed. Again, it's called depositions to perpetuate testimony, but it's really much broader than that. It allows discovery to perpetuate not only testimony, but other types of evidence. So I'm gonna talk about that in today's episode and cover the highlights of Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 27, which as our research suggests, has an equivalent in virtually every state in the country and in the three US territories. Now, in many jurisdictions, it's also a Rule 27, or some variant of that, like Rule 1.270, but not always. So let's run through the rule, and uh, we will, as always, end with some practical tips and some Q&A. By the way, I wanted to mention that if you've done some research on deposition-related topics and you need to put together a motion or a response based on the cases you found, your raw research... I highly recommend going into PACER.gov, which is, I'm sure you know, the database maintained by the federal judiciary, and tracking down the filings, the actual filings, in the key reported decisions that support your position. Those filings, such as the original motions in a case that led to a published court ruling or appeal, are often outstanding models for you to base your own papers on. Now, I'm not suggesting that you copy them word for word, but it's a great shortcut when you need to put together supporting or opposition papers. So for example, if you need to draft something to support a request to take depositions before a lawsuit's been filed, take a look at the most recent cases under Rule 27, then go into PACER and look up the individual filings that led to the decision or appeal, whatever it was that uh, resulted in an outcome favorable to you. Often those filings are extremely well done, and will contain exactly the arguments and case citations that you need for your filing. Finding the filings in a case that supports your point on PACER is a great research shortcut, and it's one I use all the time. All right, so Rule 27, again, is titled, Depositions to Perpetuate Testimony. It's expressly written to allow you to take full-blown depositions if you're expecting a lawsuit to be filed, whether by you and your client, or by an adversary against your client, but where the lawsuit can't presently be filed uh, by whoever and or you can't cause it to be filed. As I mentioned a moment ago, it's also specifically designed to allow depositions to be taken if the case is over. If a judgment has been entered, an appeal has either been filed or the time for appeal has not yet run. So if your case has come to an end, And if you're going to file an appeal, or if you've already filed one, you can use the same rule to perpetuate evidence while the appeal is pending. Now, when looking at this rule, you want to zero in right on the standard that the court will use to judge your motion. Federal Rule 27A3 says that the court must issue an order allowing depositions to be taken, quote, if satisfied that perpetuating the testimony may prevent a failure or delay of justice, close quote. So that's the touchstone for this rule and your effort to gather evidence uh, under Rule 27. Will taking the depositions or gathering the evidence prevent a failure or delay of justice? Now, what does that mean? Failure of justice, it means evidence is going to be destroyed or lost. It means that witnesses may pass away. Delay of justice. What does that mean? Well, it means that maybe the evidence isn't going to be destroyed, but maybe you're going to have a harder time getting access to it. Again, think about a witness who may be traveling to a jurisdiction uh, that you're not going to have access to for an extended period of time. So the most common grounds under Rule 27 involve situations where uh, a witness is gravely or terminally ill. A witness is of very advanced age. Think late 70s or older, a witness is likely to leave the country, or evidence is likely to be spoiled, destroyed, may vanish, or become inaccessible. There are many occasions where using this rule will be easily justifiable in your practice. How many times have you had situations where witnesses or evidence falls into one of these categories? If you can't cause your lawsuit to be filed or if you can't do anything to get an expected opponent to file their action, your evidence could disappear on you. There are many substantive areas of practice where there are conditions precedent that you or an adversary must satisfy before a lawsuit can be filed. Sometimes those conditions precedent, such as administrative exhaustion requirements, can take a year or more to conclude. So lots of bad things can happen while a claim is being put together is anticipated, or is working its way through some condition precedent. All right, so let's talk about this. How do you benefit from this rule? Well, Rule 27 lays out the exact procedure. So let's run through it very quickly. And to help you absorb the process a little more easily, think of the process I'm about to describe as more or less as the same thing as actually filing the substantive lawsuit. The process is very similar. So think of it as kind of a mini suit specifically designed to capture and preserve evidence before the actual lawsuit is filed. So here's what you do. If you're if you're going to be the petitioner, you file a verified petition in the court where any expected adverse party resides. If you're the plaintiff, the petitioner in this case, you file it in a district court where a defendant resides. If you're a defendant seeking to perpetuate testimony or evidence, you file your verified petition, wherever the plaintiff resides. The petition must ask for permission to depose specifically named individuals whose testimony you want to perpetuate. In other words, you just don't go in and say, I'd like to take the depositions of current and former employees. You've got to specifically name the witnesses whose testimony you want to perpetuate. All right, and your petition must show the following. First, your client expects to be a party in an action that can be filed in a federal court but cannot presently be brought or caused to be brought. In other words, there's no action pending at the moment, but we absolutely expect one and we just can't make it happen so that we can get depositions started as we might normally. One judge in the Ingersoll Rand case in the show notes said a substantial expectancy might be treated as the equivalent of a party expecting to be a party in an upcoming action. The petition has to outline the substance or subject matter of the expected lawsuit and outline uh, the petitioners or your clients interest in the case. You have to tell the court in your petition, the facts or points that you want to establish by the proposed testimony. You also have to tell the court why you need to perpetuate the testimony. You need to tell the court as well the names or at least the description of the persons that you expect to be adverse parties in the case and provide their addresses. So you have to tell the court who the opposition is going to be. This is not an ex parte process, unless, of course, you serve adversaries with the petition, and they don't show up. That's a different story. And you also have to provide in your petition the name, address, and expected substance of the testimony of each person that you want to depose. So the petition is going to be very detailed. It doesn't need to be long. It just has to satisfy the technical requirements outlined in the rule that we just covered. So in a way, the petition is kind of like the type of notice you might provide in a corporate representative deposition under Rule 30b-6, in the sense that you're going to tell the court the topics that you plan to cover. Now, once your petition is filed, a court will generally set a hearing on the petition. The rule itself says that at least 21 days before that hearing, You've got to serve each expected adverse party with a copy of your petition and a notice of the place and time of the hearing. If traditional service can't be made, court can, of course, order service by publication. If someone isn't served in the manner provided by rule, the court will appoint an attorney to represent people not served and at the deposition uh, to cross-examine the deponent if an unserved person is not otherwise represented. So again, the proceeding is not ex parte, and the depositions will not be ex parte. The rule requires adversaries to be notified, uh, requires or allows them to be present, and if for some reason they aren't present, the court will appoint an attorney to represent them and to conduct an appropriate examination for the absent uh, individuals for purposes of the deposition so that the testimony is taken fair and square. Now, assuming all of that is out of the way, the court will then issue an order that describes the people to be deposed, the subject matter of the examination, and how the deposition will be taken, usually by oral testimony, sometimes by written questions. Now, these are legitimate, full-blown depositions, and depositions taken under Rule 27 can be used in any later lawsuit, just like any other deposition taken in a substantive lawsuit. All right? Okay. So you say to yourself, is that it? Yes, that's it. Now, don't you feel horrible that you've never used this rule? Have you really never had a case where you needed to preserve testimony before you could get into court? No? All right. Well, you get a pass if this has never been a situation that applies to you. And so you no longer have to listen to my lecture on this, but the rest of you, why not? It's like I said in the episode on depositions by written questions. It's just a best practice for you as a litigator to have a working familiarity and experience with the range of rules that govern depositions. You never want to be in a situation where a client looks at you and says, well, do we have to wait until the lawsuit is filed? You say, "Um, yeah, because that's when we take depositions. The client then says to you, well, I Googled it. And it looks like there's some kind of process that allows you to take depositions before the lawsuit begins. Is that right? Well, as I said at the beginning of the episode, it appears that every state in the country and three U.S. territories have rules that allow you to perpetuate testimony or evidence. So you've got to be familiar with it. And it's just a good idea to flex those intellectual muscles, your practice muscles, and be familiar with this process. All right, let's do some quick question and answer, and then we'll be done. What is this rule not for? Well, it's not for figuring out whether you have a claim. It's not to see if you might have a claim. Otherwise, everyone would use Rule 27 as a due diligence tool before filing a substantive lawsuit uh, or before it's time to defend one. Take a look at the Malone case, M-E-L-O-H-N, in the show notes. There, the Rule 27 petitioner asserted that he intended to commence an action against the respondents for civil RICO. That's a claim under the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. According to the court opinion, the petitioner uh, candidly said he can't state his expected claims, can't assert them in a complaint with the requisite specificity without this information. In federal court, at least, and in many state court jurisdictions, there's a rule of procedure that if you're alleging fraud, there's a heightened pleading standard. And so the petitioner in the Malone case essentially says to the judge, Judge, I can't meet that pleading standard without getting discovery. Well, that's probably a mistake. That put the petitioner, and there were other reasons, uh, apparently in this decision, squarely in the crosshairs for denial of the petition. And the court there cited a number of decisions for the proposition that under Rule 27, a petitioner must already know the substance of the evidence that he or she seeks to perpetuate and may not use this rule as a means of discovery to search for evidence that would support a possible lawsuit. And by the way, the Malone decision contains an excellent detailed discussion of Rule 27 and what it allows and what it doesn't. So if you need a primer in a hurry, grab that decision. What is it also not for? It's not for slipping in some early discovery. Again, it's for establishing testimony that you know a witness will give. It's for perpetuating known evidence. It's for preserving evidence that is likely to disappear, whether testimonial, physical, or digital. As I said earlier in the episode, witnesses who are a very advanced age, witnesses with terminal illnesses, witnesses in the early stages of dementia, witnesses who are about to leave for other countries, perhaps with no return date. Take a look at the SIM case in the show notes, where a critical witness was about to depart for the country of Peru. Court granted the petition under those circumstances. Uh, Also, it's for preserving evidence that is likely to disappear or be spoiled. You'll find uh, one example in the Washington Mutual case in the show notes where the court granted a Rule 27 petition to allow the petitioner to depose a key 74-year-old witness while an appeal was pending due to the fact that the appeal was expected to take three years to resolve. Now, I have to tell you that it's probably wise to know who your judge is and to know how old your judge is as well if you're going to make an argument that your Rule 27 petition should be granted because you need to preserve the testimony of a witness of advanced age. I had a case once uh, in front of a judge who was 71 years old, I later learned. It wasn't a Rule 27 case, but nonetheless, there was a statute in the jurisdiction that said if your party is of advanced age, and the statute didn't define what that means, advanced age, but if your party's of advanced age, you can ask the court to expedite the case on the trial docket. And so I filed these papers without stopping to think that I'm describing someone of being advanced age who was probably two or three years younger than the judge that was going to decide the motion. So you've just got to keep that in mind and be very careful how you characterize uh, the person whose testimony you want to preserve because of their age. You want to be smart about that. Uh, Here's another great example. In the Martin case in the show notes, so we're back on track, Uh, there was an aluminum reduction plant apparently located near property used by cattle ranchers. The ranchers were apparently claiming, either informally or in some way outside the court system, that fluorides coming from the plant had been discharged onto the lands and into the water, and that their cattle had been injured by eating vegetation and drinking water contaminated by the fluorides. All right, fair enough. So the ranchers were apparently claiming that this pollution from the aluminum plant nearby had caused the death of nearly 200 cattle. So the company that operated the plant expected a lawsuit but had no basis at that time to force the ranchers to act or to file its own claim. So the company filed a petition under Rule 27 and it told the court that it wanted to have an expert inspect the cattle, both alive and dead, and to take samples of blood, urine, feed, air, water, soil, and vegetation. Uh, So there were obviously concerns that physical evidence could be lost or could deteriorate, including the actual carcasses of the deceased cattle. And of course, there was an issue about degradation of the chemicals or alleged chemicals in the soil over time. So That was a perfect situation for Rule 27 and uh, the petition was granted. All right, next question. Under what circumstances might a court find that you've shown you do have a claim and cannot yet bring it? Well, for example, in many situations there's an administrative exhaustion requirement under state or federal law that forbids you or your adversary from filing the claim until those exhaustion requirements have been satisfied and where you or your adversary are currently working your way through that administrative process. So there's obvious proof that a claim is on the way because the claim is working its way through conditions precedent. Sometimes there'll be situations where your client or an adversary have suffered harm in a very significant way that inevitably leads to litigation, so a lawsuit is highly likely. Sometimes that's going to be something like a personal injury claim where one or more people have been grievously injured from the obvious fault of someone else. Again, sometimes there are pre-suit notice requirements, which many states have that require you to provide written notice of the claim and wait a certain period of time, commonly six months or a year before you sue. So you don't have an administrative process that you're having to actively litigate or work through, but there's just a pre-suit waiting period that you can't do anything about. So this rule doesn't apply if you can go ahead and file suit right now or if you can trip some trigger by an adversary that causes them to file their action right now. It only applies to perpetuate testimony or evidence when an action is on the runway, so to speak, warming up, but just can't be filed in court in other ways. Uh, In the Leg Mason, L-E-G-G-M-A-S-O-N, two words, investment case in the show notes, There was a stipulation that the parties had signed that apparently contemplated the possible filing of a lawsuit uh, by a certain date. So it could be filed by a certain date, but didn't have to be filed immediately. So in that case, the petitioner asked the court for permission to depose a non-party witness who was approximately 87 years old. The court said that meets the test of Rule 27. There's a clear likelihood of a claim being filed by a date certain. No ability by adverse parties to compel its filing any sooner than the deadline, and the witness was both of advanced age and apparently critical to the case. Another example the Chow case, CHAO, in the show notes, a Rule 27 petition filed by the former U.S. Secretary of Labor, uh, uh, Elaine Chow. Her agency was investigating potential illegal wage and hour practices. But the problem there was that a number of the witnesses were undocumented immigrants who were about to be deported. The investigation had not been completed by the Department of Labor. In fact, hadn't actually been underway very long, just several months. And those witnesses were about to disappear under no control of the Department of Labor. Petition granted. And by the way, that petition is available, like many of the filings in the cases we're talking about, on PACER.gov. And that petition filed by the Department of Labor is a great example of a nice, tightly written petition. If you want to see what they look like, it's only four pages long, but it meets all the elements. All right, next question. What's an example of a situation where the court found the expectation of being a party in a lawsuit was just too speculative? Well, let's take a look at the Ingersoll Rand case in the show notes. In that situation, Ingersoll Rand filed the petition... Uh, because it held a patent that had been issued because of the work of one of its employees. And Ingersoll Rand was aware that another company had filed a lawsuit seeking to compel Ingersoll Rand to assign the patent to it. The company had apparently claimed that the employee whose work led to issuance of the patent actually worked for the other company at the time that the work was done. So the other company was saying to Ingersoll Rand in this uh, effort to compel assignment of the patent to it. Look, this guy worked for us when he did this work. It's not your patent. So they sued Ingersoll Rand to force reassignment of the patent. While that was going on, Ingersoll Rand filed a Rule 27 petition to preserve certain evidence in case the other company won the reassignment of patent lawsuit and then sued Ingersoll Rand for patent infringement. So the company's essentially saying to the court, look, We've been sued for the purpose of forcing us to give this patent to his prior employer. If they win that lawsuit, they're probably going to sue us next for patent infringement. The court said that's just a little too speculative. We don't know who's going to win that other lawsuit. And we don't know if they do, if they're actually going to sue. So petition denied. Next question, what's an example of a petition that was denied because there didn't appear to be any unusual risk of spoilation or the failure or delay of justice? No real specific uh, evidence that there was uh, going to be a loss of evidence for testimony. A good case on this point is the Hawthorne case in the show notes. They're a registered architect. He discovers that some of his drawings for a single-story professional office building may have been taken to a competing design firm and copied. So the architect files a Rule 27 petition to perpetuate the testimony of the folks involved, not only the folks that apparently may have taken the, the work over to the other firm, but witnesses at the other firm as well. So the architect says to the judge, well, I want to file a copyright infringement action, but I need the US Copyright Office to issue a certificate of registration which is apparently a statutory prerequisite for filing this kind of lawsuit. So the architect says to the judge that approval process by the Copyright Office could take several months. Well, there were two motions to dismiss the petition that were filed here based on what the architect said. Uh, both of those under Rule 12B6, basically motions to dismiss for failure to state a cause of action, and of course, also linked to Rule 27. So these are ordinary motions to dismiss that might be filed against a complaint in a substantive action. You can also file those against a Rule 27 petition. The architect says to the judge, Judge, here's why I filed this petition. One, there's going to be delay from the copyright registration process. Two, there may be deterioration of witness recollections over time. Three, there may be loss or misplacement of records that we need in the respondent's possession or control. Four, uh, we may have increasing difficulty over time of getting access to testimony and documents. Well, the judge granted both 12b6 motions and dismissed the petition. Why? Well, the court again says, first, this rule is not a substitute for general discovery. It's not meant to help you fish for evidence or find claims or defendants. And the judge also looked at the reasons given and says, look, those are factors that are present in every case. The risk that memories may fade and that documents may be lost over time exists for every potential litigant. So an allegation that witnesses might die or that memories might fade are not sufficient or without more for a Rule 27 petition. Another example on the same point is the United Heritage case in the show notes. There, an insurance company got a claim for insurance coverage after the insured's house uh, was completely destroyed in a fire. So the insurance company files its petition saying to the court, well, there are some inconsistent statements made by the insureds. And some of those inconsistent statements may relate to phone calls. So the insurance company in its petition told the court that it wanted cell phone records to complete their investigation. The court pointed out that insurance counsel at the hearing on the petition acknowledged that he actually didn't have information about the data retention policies of the cell phone carriers. Well, yikes. That would have been useful information to have when the standard is whether there is likely to be a delay or failure of justice due to the destruction of evidence. So the court says you don't have what you need here. What you're really trying to do is discover evidence, not perpetuate it, because you can't say with any certainty that there's a real risk that the evidence you need is going to be destroyed. So absent risk or evidence that uh, there's going to be a loss or degradation of proof that you need, Rule 27 isn't satisfied because there's nothing to perpetuate. Next question, does this rule allow you to conduct discovery other than depositions? Yes. Again, although the rule is titled Depositions to Perpetuate Testimony, Rule 27A3 authorizes a judge to, quote, issue orders like those authorized by rules 34 and 35, close quote. Some courts say this language clearly allows you to file a petition simply to compel the production of tangible evidence so that it isn't lost, even if you don't actually need to depose anyone. It could be videotape evidence, an audio recording, a computer hard drive, a flash drive, or SD card, a website, a social media profile, the list goes on and on. So much evidence these days is digital, and is so easily lost, modified, or destroyed. And because this really is a interests of justice rule, you should be fairly aggressive about asking the court to allow other discovery, if needed under the rule, either independent of a deposition, or to allow you to prepare ahead of time for a preservation deposition sought by your adversary. That's essentially the holdings in the Matt Zinger and Agent Orange cases in the show notes. There, the judges essentially said it would be unfair to require adverse parties to a petition to conduct or participate in a deposition, which is intended or likely to be introduced as evidence in a possible future trial without allowing them the opportunity to prepare for that deposition through the service of written requests for documents and so on. So if you need paper discovery to get ready for a deposition, ask for it. Next question. If an adversary asks the court to allow it to take perpetuation depositions, can you take other depositions pertinent to or adjunct to the preservation deposition? Yes, absolutely. That's a basic principle of fairness. All right, so that's a bit of a deep dive into Rule 27. This episode is a little longer than normal, but I wanted to provide you with a range of examples and questions uh, based on actual cases to give you a good sense for it. This rule surely has lots of applications in your practice area if you are a civil litigator. So I urge you to take a look at these cases, uh, maybe beginning with the 2021 order in the Malone case. That does a great job of providing an overview. All right? A great rule to become familiar with and to test. Use it. Experiment with it and see what kinds of things you can get to improve Uh, the work you do for your clients. All right, that's it. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions for us or even suggested topics, shoot us an email at depositionpodcast at jimgaritylaw.com. All right, that's a wrap for today. We've got lots of great episodes coming up. I'll talk to you soon.